This BYU devotional with Brother Stephen J. Lund was given on September 20th, 2022. Good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome to our devotional. We're pleased to have Brother Stephen J. Lund, Young Men General President, as our speaker today. President Lund was sustained as Young Men General President in April 2020. His church service includes serving as a full-time missionary in the Netherlands Amsterdam Mission, Mission President in the Georgia Atlanta Mission, Area 70, Coordinator of the Provo City Center Temple Dedication Committee, and member of the Young Men General Board. Stephen Lund received an undergraduate degree in communications and a law degree, both from BYU. He worked as an attorney before becoming president and CEO of a large Utah-based cosmetic company. He is currently serving as executive chairman of its board of directors. President Lund and his wife, Colleen, are the parents of four children. Now we'll be pleased to hear from President Stephen J. Lund. Well, it is exhilarating to be here with you in this room today. In some ways, it seems like we've been together here most of my life. I came here first into this room as a freshman, young, single adult, uh, just arriving on the BYU campus. I served a mission with young single adult missionaries. And then I served in the military with YSA aged soldiers. And then I came back to BYU as a 24 year old sophomore after a six year summer vacation between mission and military to serve again with young single adults. I've served in presidencies of seven elders quorum presidents, mostly of young single adults. I served in a YSA bishopric as a high counselor over a YSA board, ward, and then a bishop of that ward, and then in a YSA stake presidency. And then we were off to be mission leaders where we found ourselves with a bunch of young single adult missionaries. We came home, was called again into a YSA bishopric, and then I was called to be at Area 70, where of course my assignment was to serve all of the YSA stakes here in Utah Valley. So, it seems I'm suffering from a state of arrested development. I, can, I, I can't really get past my 18th birthday somehow. <laughs> but what's interesting to me is that through all of those years and assignments, you've never changed. I don't know what you see when you look at me, but I look at you and I see contemporaries. It's been a great life growing up with you in rooms like this with astonishing people like those found here today. So let's talk about faith. Faith and belief are complicated things. My most recent work with children and youth has made me especially attuned to youth whose gospel moorings sometimes fray. And it's not only young people, but many among us who find ourselves sometimes unsure of the doctrines or of the narrative. We cannot judge each other for what we do and do not know because Belief and testimony comes only through gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts of the Spirit are, after all, gifts. They are highly individualized and measuredly dispensed by a Heavenly Father who knows our hearts and needs and administers to them with divine precision. Heavenly Father purposely designed and ordered our world to require us to walk in faith. He pressed into place the pieces of this sophisticated jigsaw puzzle of mortality, but held back a few of the pieces, 
which he keeps in his pocket to ensure that our faith is required as we come up against the edges and gaps in this puzzle's spiritual landscape. He's ensured that we will not be able to game the system by thinking our way to heaven, to discover him through provable math or science, which would obviate faith and foreclose the very purposes of mortality. I have a struggling attorney friend who recently said of the gospel, you know, it just doesn't add up. Well, his observation is fair, isn't it? The puzzle is incomplete, so it does not always add up. But this shouldn't surprise us. Even in mathematics, there are numbers like pi that are irrational, but reliably constant. I spoke once at the law school here across the street about these themes, and I'm borrowing from that talk today with permission. You don't want to really cross the law school, so I got permission. <laughs> there is a principle of law that's called the doctrine of chances that applies by analogy to our mortal walk here in life. The doctrine of chances is an exception to the, a rule of evidence. Normally, evidence of a person's prior crimes or acts can't be considered in deciding a person's guilt in a later incident. Just because somebody committed one crime doesn't necessarily mean that he committed another. But the doctrine of chances essentially asks, what are the chances that a highly unlikely combination of such facts is mere coincidence? This doctrine arose in a 1915 trial when a husband, Mr. Smith, was accused of drowning his wife in a bath. Smith claimed that she had fainted and drowned. Now, normally under the rules of evidence, the prosecutor could not introduce evidence of Smith's prior acts. But the judge was asked essentially the question, what are the chances that it was just innocent coincidence that Smith's two prior wives had also drowned in bathtubs? Suddenly, I'm embarrassed to say, Smith's case went down the drain. And, <laughs> and he was summarily hanged. But when, so when multiple overlapping sets of data form a pattern that decidedly points towards a certain conclusion and no other explanations seem to make sense, the truthfulness of that conclusion must be considered. So I hope today to describe how recognizing such patterns leads to powerful conclusions of faith. While serving as an Area 70, I was once presiding over a Saturday adult session of state conference. During a question and answer session, a large man in blue coveralls stood up in the middle of the chapel and asked challengingly, so have you seen God? Well, there was an uneasy shuffle in the room his question was inappropriate on so many levels. I thought, really, Korohor in coveralls. <laughs> My first impulse was to skirt the question and to move on, but I felt the stirrings of the Spirit prompting me to consider, well, what does it mean to be an especial witness? I took a breath and a memory suddenly flooded my mind. And so I shared an experience which I had never spoken of before. Once on a business trip, I landed in pre-dawn hours at an airport in Asia and wearily found a car and a driver. 
The trip would take a couple of hours, so I used my overcoat as a cushion and positioned myself in the left corner of the back seat, planning to sleep for a while. But my attention became riveted on the moonlit landscape of that exotic place with its mysterious wooded hills and shadowy open expanses. As the morning sky gradually lightened, I saw evidence of an estuary on the left and an approaching bridge. As we drove onto that bridge, I was disappointed to find that the view was blocked on both sides by tall concrete slabs that formed walls which apparently had been erected to contain the traffic noises of the expressway. I absently stared at that wall opposite me, wondering what was beyond as we whirred by at high speed. So as we left the bridge and the barricades ended, I glanced back at the vista that I had not been able to see and noted that it was just as I had imagined, a large body of water with a forested far edge and a few boats coming and going. And I found myself leaning forward to see further behind us to confirm that through the morning fog, a large sailboat was approaching the seaway under the far edge of the bridge. Suddenly, my jet-lagged, muddled brain snapped into a moment of clarity as I wondered, how did I know to look for that sailboat? I couldn't have known it was there. But somehow, I did, somehow, I'd been looking for it. In fact, I realized that none of what I saw in the fully revealed vista had surprised me. I seemed to know where to find the wooded outline of that far shore, the barges, the building on the distant rise. But how? It slowly dawned on me that the massive concrete wall slabs on the bridge had small gaps between them of a fraction of an inch. And as we spread across the bridge, my eyes had been fixed on the blur of gray concrete, but punctuated by minute flashes of bright light from the morning sun through those narrow slits. Slits too small for me to de detect anything but bright flickers and flashes. And yet somewhere in my mind, undetected, information was transmitted in those bursts of light, which was apparently compiled and subliminally stitched together into a latent vision of what lay beyond. I knew what was there before I knew that I knew. And I would have missed the marvel of it if I had not turned back to look. So back in the state conference, I finished telling this story as much to myself as to anyone and realized that the fellow was still standing there with an arm looped through his front suspenders. Does that help, I asked. He shrugged absently and sat down, probably not completely satisfied. But I was filled with wonder. The Spirit had just answered my own long-standing prayer about my ministry and about my witness. I knew more than I knew I knew. As we drive through life's journey, we'll see flashes of light. The Lord promised Isaiah, I will make darkness light before them. Think about this. Life often presents like an incessant gray wall stretching off into nowhere. But here and there, if we watch for them, flickering assurances of God's love for us become evident. Earth's crammed with heaven, observed the poet, and every common bush afire with God. 
but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. Clive Staples Lewis described a ride something like mine. At the time, he was a young professor and atheist teaching at Oxford between the world wars. J.R.R. Tolkien was among his best friends and a devout Christian. Over time, they spoke of religion and the spirit worked on young C.S. Lewis. One day, his brother gave him a ride in the sidecar of his motorcycle to a zoo that was opening in a town some distance away. Lewis later wrote, I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. We set out, when we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. When we reached the zoo, I did. St. Augustine, perhaps the greatest mind of his age, also spoke of sudden, unexpected inspiration. Steeped in classical philosophy, he attempted to reconcile the understanding of Christianity that he had with the formal logic of his day. One day, he had an experience connecting him with heaven that caused him to dismiss his entire life's work of philosophy as so much hay. He had simply gotten it wrong. Of that experience, Augustine said simply, my mind withdrew its thoughts from experience in order to see, in order to seek for that light in which it was bathed. And thus, with the flash of a trembling glance, it arrived at that which is. I don't know what Augustine saw but it was miraculous and it was compelling. The heavens emitted a charged glint of light that converted abstract theology into testimony. We might ask how long it takes for a testimony to ignite. Well, apparently, somewhere between the flash of a trembling glance and the time it takes to drive to the zoo. Sometimes it may take even longer. Those experiences of accumulating knowledge through flashes of intelligence are similes of my own spiritual life and probably of yours. My testimony, the reason of the hope that is in me, is a composite panorama of the countless bursts of light through an otherwise impenetrable earthly veil. I speak here of such flashes in hopes that they might bring to your mind similar glimpses that have informed your testimony so that in those questioning moments you might remember, remember them. While these anecdotes don't amount to proof beyond reasonable doubt, they do combine to remind me of a tangible reality of that which is. That's not always before my eyes. After my mission to the Netherlands, I was preparing to return to BYU and spent a day with my uh, temple worker grandparents at the Oakland, California temple, seeking guidance about my future course of study and career. While sitting in a quiet ordinance room, a thought proclaimed to my mind that I should join the military. That impression could not have evoked a stronger allergic response in my soul. Two years earlier, as a freshman here, I had nervously watched the Vietnam War draft lottery play out on the dorm television and was relieved that my birthday did not pop up until the 346th draw. 
Had I been born a few hours later, my number would have been 10, and I would have been on my way to Vietnam. Clearly, Heavenly Father didn't want me to be a soldier. But now, here I was sitting in the temple trying to dismiss this impression as a random thought. But I'd been a missionary, and I'd come to know what inspiration feels like. And so, soon enough, after basic combat training, I found myself stationed first at Fort Stewart, Georgia, followed a year later by orders to Frankfurt, Germany. All the while, I was bewildered and a little tortured. In Georgia, I lived in an unair conditioned cinder block room in the middle of a 30-mile swamp with 30 other soldiers. My work was unstimulating. I came to love some of my fellow soldiers, but they were living quite different lives from this newly returned missionary. The church was my refuge. I longed for Sundays and for young single adult family home evenings. Those gatherings were the bright spots of my weeks where I could recharge and be reminded of who I was. One Monday in Frankfurt, I got hung up at work and racing to the chapel, I arrived to the church late just after the carpool of our group of young single adults had driven away to a distant apartment across town. For me, this was a disaster. Some of you will know that the streets of Frankfurt, Germany are designed like a spider web that's been through a fire. This, <laughs> the streets wander through each other in random disorder, crossing rivers and tram tracks and back again. Someone seemed, seemed to go out at night every night and reverse the one-way street signs so that even when you knew where you were going, you couldn't go there that way. And I remembered that a couple of months earlier, I had ridden through the dark in this same, to the same apartment, crammed in the back seat of a car, but I remembered nothing of the route. I knew only that it was many miles of tangled streets away. I drove home from the church as a sad, dejected soldier, and arriving there, I folded my arms, intending on grumbling just a little and saying, Heavenly Father, but before I could continue with, I'm really trying here. Something of a map flashed in my head. I saw a well-lit sequence of streets starting at the church, traveled down Eckenheimer Landstrasse through a number of intersections, around a traffic circle, left, right, left, over a bridge, more turns, onto a broad bending street in front of an apartment building. I was incredulous. There was not a chance in this world that I could drive to that place. But I returned to the church to make a faithless try and followed the route that had been impressed upon my mind. After driving perhaps 20 minutes and making about 40 uncertain decisions, I turned onto a broad street alongside of an apartment building that filled the entire length of a long bending city block. I was stunned to see that I was pulling up to what might have been the right building. But now I had a new problem. There were several narrow tunnels through the building into the small parking areas behind that accessed stairwells up through the four floors of apartments above. Impossible, I thought. I don't know if any of those is the right drive-through. And besides, there are hundreds of apartments. But it seemed to be a miracle that I'd gotten this far, so I slowly drove past several drive-throughs and blindly turned into one. 
And then standing at the base of a dark, cold, four-story building, I thought, even if this is the correct stairwell in the correct building, they could be anywhere on any floor. But I started climbing the stairs with little hope of a hint. Ultimately, I stopped on the third floor. And then, okay, this way or that. And then, was the door on the left side of the hall or the right? And then I walked past eight or ten doors, my feeble faith vaporizing by the moment, and thought, I may not even be in the right building. Does my faith require me just to start knocking on random doors? And I stopped to contemplate that question when I heard singing, the Spirit of God like a fire. It was burning. I opened that door, the most astonished 23-year-old in this church. Heavenly Father had sent a a shaft of light that replaced my bewilderment with wonder. Later that night, I couldn't even find my way home without a guide. So what were the chances? Eventually, I returned to BYU after my service, still confused about how it could have made sense for me to drop out of school for three long years. Subsequently, many reasons have become clear. After returning to school, I started to date a girl I'd met in Frankfurt, a girl from Tooele, Utah, whose father had taken a job in Germany, a girl so far beyond me in every way that I would never have been able to get her attention at BYU if I had not still known her, first known her at Germany, where she had been in a state of diminished capacity. (laughs) As a fellow stranger in a strange land. And so it came to pass that against all odds, she agreed to marry me. Now what were those chances? I've learned that the Lord sometimes withholds blessings from us to eventually deliver undeniably discernible miracles. I would serve 100 army enlistments for that one stunning miracle that formed our family. Well, now at BYU, I was serving in the bishopric of a singles ward with you and became friends with the ward finance clerk who had just returned from his mission in France. He finished his finance degree at the same time I finished law school and he invited me to help him build a company. 35 years later, that company touches millions of people in 50 countries. I marvel that but for that little burst of light in the temple years before, I would have come and gone from BYU and never met Blake Roney, who has enabled so many miracles in our lives. The list of blessings flying from that still small spark of inspiration goes on and on. None of these things are coincidences. They are consequences of a string of unpredictable heavenly interventions that have burst through the veil as flashes of light through what has at times felt like a drab, never-ending gray wall. Years later, our nine-year-old son, Tanner, came home from a touch football game with a pain that turned out to be cancer. He bravely endured three years of aggressive treatment and two bone marrow transplants, and at one point, 10 weeks on a ventilator hovering 
between life and death in a medically induced coma. When he was 12, after about a year of remission, the cancer recurred, this time with a vengeance, and went into his bones and into his head. One night he was so sick that we moved his bed into our bedroom where we could be with him. He awakened in the middle of the night with severe head pain and we tried to comfort him, but to no effect. Suddenly, in the silent, darkened room, he looked up with an incredulous look on his face and said, they say I'm supposed to go in the kitchen and sit up on the couch. What do you mean? Who? No response. And then a little impatiently, I'm just supposed to go and sit up. Well, he spoke with such unusual certainty that we helped him make his way into the kitchen where he sat on a couch and pulled a blanket around his shoulders and then slept peacefully the rest of the night. The next morning, we admitted him to Primary Children's Hospital for what would be his last time. I told an oncologist of this exchange in the night. The doctor reasoned that Tanner's head pain had probably been caused by pressure blocking a tube that drains cerebrospinal fluid away from the brain. And the only way to get such pain to stop, he said, is to have the, uh, the uh, patient sit up to take the pressure off of this part of his brain so that things could equalize. Well, this made sense, but what were the chances that 12-year-old Tanner could figure that out? And who were they? Colleen and I were called as mission leaders over the Georgia Atlanta mission. Miracles flashed through our mission with such regularity that we came to think of it as having a front row seat to the greatest show on earth where the powers of heaven were wielded by heavenly agents with black name tags as they gathered Israel home. Colleen calls our missionary service a miracle a day program. She had the formal assignment of overseeing health care for our missionaries. If one of them got sick, they would call her. It's hard to diagnose problems over the phone, even if you have medical training. Colleen's medical knowledge was basically that of an on-the-job trained mom raising a family, but also the practiced experience of discerning flashes of heavenly light. Just a few weeks into our mission, she got a call from a missionary who'd called a couple of times before with one issue or another. On this particular morning, he complained of, that his stomach had been hurting. And she decided to ask a senior missionary couple that lived near him to go over and take a look just in case. She later told me, I opened my mouth to say that and heard myself say instead words that had never passed through my mind. Elder, it is appendicitis. Go to the hospital. Go now. Well, in the emergency room, they found nothing wrong and concluded that he must have overeaten, which was entirely plausible. He was a missionary. <laughs> they ordered him home, but our elder told the doctor, no, Sister Lund told me I have appendicitis. <laughs> the doctor thought that Sister Lund must be a nun someplace in the hospital and said, well, 
then let's run another test. And they did, and the test was also negative. And so they started to send him home again, but he kept insisting that Sister Lund had diagnosed appendicitis. So he lingered. Finally, the problem revealed itself, prompting an immediate surgery, which the surgeon told us barely saved his life. Five minutes later, he said, and we might have lost him. Now, you might think that Colleen made a lucky guess, but she will tell you that she was only an innocent bystander as the Lord kept his promise to his missionary. I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left. And mine angels round about you to bear you up. In the kingdom of God, such stories of faith abound, but miracles rarely announce themselves. To see them, we might have to turn back and look. One flash of light memorialized in our family history involved my young mother driving alone in 1958 from California to her grandmother's funeral in Arizona across those narrow roads of the desert. As she drove through the desert passes in the black of night, she heard a physical voice pull over and stop. She let up on the gas in confusion and then she heard with urgency, pull over and stop now. She jerked the car into the narrow, onto the narrow shoulder, screeching to a stop just ahead of a narrow ravine bridge. In that moment, two semi-trucks passing each other came around the blind bend towards her and onto the bridge, filling both lanes. There would have been nowhere for her to go. One fast Sunday, I felt the confirming power of somebody's testimony that in a flash of light, Saul changed to Paul and Paul changed the world. I know from decades of experience with you that you have experienced what I have, that some of these flashes of spiritual light come and they come most often when we're on the Lord's errand. My journal is full of notes about doctrinal insights that I have gained only in the moment that I taught them during church assignments. A young woman once asked me in a conference setting something akin to a question that many of you have this morning. How was she supposed to succeed in her first semester of law school and be a new Relief Society president too? I started to say, well, good luck with that. <laughs> but following an impression, I asked, well, who was it that called you to do this impossible thing? She thought for a moment. Well, Heavenly Father, why? Why? Why did he call me? Well, I suppose because I'm just home from a mission and I know how to work. I suppose because he knew that I would say yes. Because I can accomplish things even under stress. I told her, all no doubt true. But there's another reason which was a preposterous thing for me to say since I didn't yet know that reason. <laughs> but then I said, he may have called you to save you from law school. They are changing your mind down there, mostly in good ways, but while you are, they are causing you to be able to defend every side of every argument, Relief Society will be reminding you that eternal truths are immutable.
Law school teaches you that passion for your profession is a critical element to success. Relief Society is teaching you that the world is too much with us and that real joy is centered in Him. Law school will teach you to love ideas and respect the brilliant shapers of thought and theory. Relief Society will remind you that some ideas are better than others and that the philosophies of men pale alongside of the ennobling intelligence dispensed through prophets. I saw that she was taking notes through misty eyes, weeping and nodding. Now, maybe I had simply guessed her needs and responded with words that had never before formed in my mind, but you'd have to be me to understand why that explanation simply doesn't add up. What are the chances? In any event, those insights hold true, whether your major is law or whatever you're majoring in and whether your calling is that or another. Sometimes we can become diverted from the majesty of the gospel because hard things happen. University life is designed, especially here, to take you to the wall where you will have to fight your way to growth. Church doctrines and practices, and for that matter, our life's challenges, don't always come with explanatory footnotes. But if we will be faithful observers of the workings of the Spirit in our lives, we can come to better respect the miracles that illuminate the tapestries of our testimonies and find courage to move forward in enlightened faith. One of the times that Nephi was defending his faith and his very life in the wilderness, he asked his family essentially our same question. Given what's happened to our people, what are the chances that without God, the children of Israel were led out of Egypt? That the Red Sea was divided? That without God, we were fed manna? And that Moses smote a rock and brought forth water? and that they were led by day and given light by night, and that he made them mighty to conquer the land, and that they were saved from poisonous serpents with a a raised symbol of the Messiah. And then he might have added, and what about that business with the angel who spoke to you with a voice of thunder? Nephi used these lightning bolt incandescent flashes of his family history and heritage to reveal to them the loving God who is just beyond the veil. Our experiences with the Spirit, yours and mine, may seem best measured in microlumens rather than lightning bursts, but especially on our, in our darkest hours, the Spirit can amplify them to clearly light our way along the covenant path, to keep us connected to the central truth of mortality the Lord proffers us a renewal of covenant almost every week. Those sacrament prayers are not poems we recite or anthems that we rehearse. These are ordinances. They are words spoken to Heavenly Father by holders of keys over the very ministering of angels, bearers of the priesthood who implore the heavens that then and there the power of the atonement may cleanse 
and purify and sanctify lives. Every week, miracles happen as young boys stand in the stead of the Savior and present us with the emblems of his atonement, inviting us to be cleansed of our pain and sorrow and mistakes and sins. The soft, salvific flashes of healing light that warm our souls in sacrament meetings constitute a miracle more profound than even the parting of the Red Sea, more than a soldier being guided to sanctuary, an angel commandeering a telephone to save a missionary, a holy whisper leading a child from pain, more than Saul finding, finding the Savior on the road to Damascus, or an Oxford Don finding the Savior on the road to Whipsnade, or even then the divine hurling of the stars and the planets into their ordered rotations, all evidence a pattern of the veil leaking light as the Savior relentlessly pierces it to bless his own. I bear this testimony, informed as it is, and very probably like yours is, by the accumulated weight of a thousand flashes of light. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. This BYU devotional with Brother Stephen J. Lund was given on September 20th, 2022. BYU Devotionals are a production of BYU Broadcasting.